Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. We talk about mechanical pencils, hot air guns, and the smell of asphalt in the morning on this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 79, Tools of the Trade, April 2nd, 2015. So Jeff, why do professors often say that they uh, don't teach tools? Well, the problem is that the tools are changing all the time. And so whereas you can teach calculus and, uh, you know, there are developments in mathematics over time, but the basics of it don't change over time. Uh, but if you were to learn, you know, a, a programming language or you were to learn, you know, a solid modeling package, these change over time. And so they don't want to spend all their time readjusting their notes and keeping up to date and making sure that all this, uh, all the software that all the students has is up to date. It's, it's much easier uh, to stick to the, the abstractions that don't change over time uh, and tell the students, ah, Learn that on your own time. You know, here's here's a uh, here's a manual, or we've installed we've installed the uh, the software on on the computers in the uh, uh, in the lab in the computer lab. Uh, go spend a little time and learn it on your own. So, whereas a lot of employers are looking for engineers that have uh, specific uh, competencies and tools that you know how to run a particular software program, uh, for the most part, the schools prefer not to teach them because it's very difficult to do that. The the uh, the target is moving all the time. Yes, yes, it is. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, you can only teach so much in the lab anyways. You can't completely teach how to build a prototype, you know, whether it comes to machine shops or whatever. There's little nuances. You have to just pick up on the job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Ten weeks will only teach you so much. <laughs> yeah. Now, so I've been out of school for quite a long time. Well, I mean, undergrad uh, for quite a long time. And so, there wasn't a whole lot of time spent uh, teaching any software tools because there weren't that, you know, they taught us Fortran, you know, <laughs> that's what we had. So, so when you're, you're a more recent graduate, uh, how much of your undergrad uh, time was spent teaching uh, software tools? As little as possible, you know, and the first, <laughs> the first lab of every course, you know, was like, here's a quick how to and get a, you know, get a basic simulation running in uh, P-Spice or, you know, this is how to use Altera's software. Uh, yeah. And then it was diving right into whatever we were trying to simulate, whether it was amplifiers or, you know, digital logic. Right. Well, these, uh, these tools, I mean, we're speaking mostly here of, of software tools, uh, but there are other types of tools. You know, as a mechanical engineer, at some point, uh, hopefully you learn how to turn a wrench or, or uh, use a screwdriver or maybe you get to, uh, you know, program a, a lathe or a milling machine, those kind of things. So all those kind of tools are helpful. What, so what about you guys? In, in your realm of, of engineering, what makes for a good engineering tool? Becomes kind of like an extension of my hand, at least when I'm working in the lab. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm... If I'm reworking a board or, you know, jury rigging some kind of test setup, I don't want to have to think too much about what I'm doing with my tool. I just want it to work when I need it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry like, oh, are these players going to fall apart because they're cheap? Is my soldering iron tip actually hot or is it, uh, you know, losing a lot of heat when I touch it to a ground plane? Mm -hmm. um, the, it, reliability is a key. 
Yeah. How, how about in the world of civil engineering, Adam? Um, I mean, well, I know you're you're not out there on the bulldozer driving it around every day. <laughs> uh, yeah, reliability is is key. Uh, it needs to do the job that I need it to do, and not the job that someone in management or human resources or IT <laughs> thinks it should do. Right. <laughs> um, not, not that that's always the way things work, um, as anyone who's worked for a large organization knows. Right. Um. I let HR choose my scopes. <laughs> uh, sometimes it feels like they do when you're like, I would like this scope for $30,000. And they say, mm, you got 20 if you're lucky. Yeah, but but it only does half of what I need. Can you get a refurbished model? No, it's the new one. <laughs> so have you guys found any any good tips for, for figuring how to convince management that uh, the tool you want is the tool you need? Mm. Take hostages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, it's not my go-to. You know, I'll try to bribe them with sweets or uh, whatever. Yeah, donuts or hostages. I, I, I yeah, yeah. Sometimes because I don't have the tool I need, you know, there's a, not not a conscious work stoppage, but a work slowdown because the right tool really could have sped the process up. Right. You know, some of the new new scopes out there have software packages that I really think we could make some good use of, but. Uh, don't have yet in the lab. That's not a joke. I mean, the difference, I mean, you, you, oftentimes you try to cheap out on tools without recognizing how much it costs to have an engineer spin their wheels a little bit. Oh, I agree. Um, a recent one that just happened uh, for myself at work was we started doing parts on CSP packages. And for those of you not in the IC business or using them at work, a CSP package is is, is at least right now, as small as you could possibly get an integrated circuit. It is not much more than the actual die. They don't put it in one of those black cases, uh, you know, that people come to think of as ICs. The CSP package is the bare silicon with a ball grid array on it. And trying to put one of those on a board is a pain in the butt, to say the least. And for a while, we didn't have a proper hot air rework station to do that. We needed one with a good vision system, and we just didn't have it. So if we had to get boards populated, we would have to, you know, or we blew a part up because we're doing validation for the first time. We would have to send new ICs and old boards to an assembly house, and they would have to swap them out for us. And, we, you know, you'd mm -hmm. lose two days if you found a local one. That was about as fast as you could go. Uh, now we can do it in the lab, and it takes 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I've actually had some good luck. Um, if, if we can document and, and show on paper why this is going to save money. Occasionally, they'll let me buy the fancy, expensive tool, uh, but that's rare because uh, it, it does take. You really do have to to document this. It's really going to be worth it based on the amount of staff time we're going to save. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Another this one is we hilarious. We wrestled in. Go ahead, oh, go ahead, Carmen. No, you go ahead, Carmen. All right, uh, was uh, some software to convert between uh, Allegro schematics and layouts to Cadence and vice versa. And you think there would be a tool built in since they're owned by the same company now, but... I was going to say, aren't they the same tool? <laughs> yes, they are, but there's no way to convert right now. So we had all this legacy stuff, and we were just doing it by hand, you know, redrawing the schematics, and now we have a conversion tool that gets it, you know, 95% of the way there in, you know, two minutes, as opposed to spending half a day or more redrawing everything. 
and not tying up the layout guys tool time, making new symbols and, you know, duplicating a bunch of work that we already did. And and so what's the attitude these days from the uh, sales reps? Because in certain situations, I would be able to, say, borrow a piece of equipment. They would loan it to us for, you know, a day or a week or a month so we could try things out. Uh, and obviously, the uh, the higher the value of the device, the more they were willing to do it. But, of course, they were concerned that, uh, you know, a dentist knows that it's best to get agreement for payment before the tooth is removed. And uh, and so, same way, if, if you borrow it for a month, take care of your pain, the problem's gone, and hand it back to the salesperson. They're not too happy because they haven't made a sale. Well, then they know for next time you need it. Uh, hey, the, <laughs> the last time was a freebie. This time you have to buy it. <laughs> or you go and get no. it instead of for a month, a week. I'll be honest, I've never actually met a rep from somebody I would consider a uh, tools company. Uh, National Instruments excluded. Um, I've never met a rep for Tektronics or uh, uh, Agilent or whatever they're calling themselves these days. Um, I actually get to meet, not all the time, but fairly regularly. Yeah. (laughs) I, 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 I don't know, I just... Maybe it was the type of places I've worked. You know, we get chip vendors in all the time. It's just, you know, whenever we needed something or thought we needed something, we'd probably lease it before we'd buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we kind of did that with our hot air rework station for the CSP packages. Uh, we had a loaner for, you know, whatever, and then we decided just to straight up buy it. But for scopes, we've only had for a week, maybe two to test drive, and then it's out of my hands if we buy it because I don't control the money. And so what about the the time learning to come up to speed with these tools? I mean, I was trying recently to teach myself KiCad, uh, having never done any kind of board layout before. And there were, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of time, but it was probably, you know, it was 10 hours of playing around with the thing and trying things and seeing what worked and didn't work and writing down notes and stuff before I was to a point where I could be you know, effective, I could do something. And maybe I'm just a slow learner. That could be too. <laughs> but uh, so so what's the atmosphere as far as uh, your management telling you how much time you you have allotted? I mean, if, if you've got a really sophisticated scope, don't you have to spend quite a bit of time coming up to speed with how to use all its features? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the sales reps are nice once in a while. They'll, they'll teach you stuff or in the, you know, Lightning strikes, you know, the same point twice occasionally. Once in a while, I can get sent to a training seminar, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. You don't usually hold your breath for that. <laughs> but, but but that's but that's still money out of the manager's pocket. Oh yeah, I mean, out of the manager's budget. Um, uh, usually you just come up to it like you know with an oscilloscope. It, we we wouldn't buy one right before we started validation on a new chip. You know, if we could help it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the schedules change. Who knows what could happen? But if we could plan it, we'd get it. In like the off time in between new silicon and old silicon where, yeah, there's some lab work, but none of it is critical where you have to get it done today, tomorrow, the next day, or all's gone to hell. Um, Mm -hmm. So you'd take some routine measurements, get up to speed on it, and then in that time, maybe try to devise, like if you had some kind of scripting, you could plug in MATLAB too or whatever. Then you'd try to come up to speed on that during the off time so it's ready. Mm -hmm. Do you need traceability on your tools? Uh, in what regard? I feel like we talked about uh, this before, but I can't remember. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, in uh, certain businesses, uh, 
at least the one that I've worked in, you are required to have NIST t- traceability on your uh, tools. So if you do validation. Oh, like something. calibration stickers and stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, we do. You, so to answer Jeff's questions from at least another part of industry, you couldn't make a decision at the last second or even anywhere near the last second to get a new O-scope or a new spectrum analyzer. It's it's got to be made well in advance, and it's got to be something that's kind of known and already controlled by your um, measurement group. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not quite that strict, but I'm not working on airplanes or whatever industry this was. Oh, um, well, in medical, I think would be very similar to. Yeah. No, we have once a year, you know, the big Cal truck comes and parks outside our office, and they sit there for a week or so, you know, and everybody disassembles their bench and brings it over to them, and they keep it for a day or two to you know, calibrate everything and put the stickers back on. But for some stuff, like I got a uh, a little USB thing that'll not a bus pirate, but similar that'll throw some protocols or, you know, drive some bits if I'm doing some custom stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't have to be caled, but like oscilloscopes, multimeters, all that stuff does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my sense is that, that uh, electronics and electrical industry changes rather rapidly you know the tools are are uh, constantly being uh, superseded by new processors, new software. No matter what kind of device you're uh, using, because it's all driven by uh, software. I think it's pretty superficial, though. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the screen. You know, you went from CRTs to to uh, LCDs, but for the most part, a digital scope is a digital scope. I mean, they've added some additional functionality, but what you would use the scope for 10 years ago is still what you'd use the scope for now. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, um, the, the basic put up a signal, twiddle some knobs and lock it in is all the same. Yeah. And the trigger, uh, you know, the, the basic handling trigger. triggering and hold off. Yeah. Is, is all the same. It, it looks flashier. It looks better. And they add a whole bunch more options that you might've previously required a PC to do, but, you know, the fact that it can decode CAN or SPY or something, whatever, or I2C, you know, that, I've never had that really figure into a scope bind decision. No, yeah, that's always nice to have. I'm still looking at the basic specs, analog bandwidth, number of channels. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm a little confused that if 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 the if the scope of, of five years ago is as good as the scope of today, uh, why the lust for a new scope? Why the lust for any new tool? Why not still use pointed sticks? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> pointed sticks and rocks, man. Anything else is just fancy. Okay, but but if but if so, with what you've told me, if I'm a manager and I'm hearing this, I'm going. Well, see, they've just admitted that, you know, the five-year-old scope works just fine. Why should I be spending money on something new? In my experience, it's never the discussion over the five-year-old scope. It's the discussion of over the, you know, you have two, you know, two-year-old scopes and half a dozen old analog Tektronix scopes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know. <laughs> um, you, you also, it's not usually the five-year-old scopes, it's the 10, the 15-year-old scopes that, yes, maybe the analog specs haven't changed, but after 10 or 15 years of almost daily use breaking the buttons, you know, warranties expire eventually. Yeah. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. Um, also, you know, it, chips have, in the last 10 or 15 years, yeah, the uh, the scope 
as a whole maybe is still the same core, but the, the right. chips you're working on change quite a bit. And yeah, maybe 10 years ago, you didn't need the spy decoder, but today it's a it's a big thing and having it in the scope would save you a lot of time. You wouldn't have to buy another piece of you know equipment on the bench. Um, or like in, in my case, you know, as chips becomes more integrated and you put more regulators on the same chip, uh, you'd want to look at more signals at once than the standard four. So mm-hmm. if you could swing for the what is it, the eight analog channel LaCroix scope they just came out with not too long ago, that would be a big help. But it's also like a fifty, sixty thousand dollar scope. Right. So that would be, you know, do we get one for the lab and then whoever needs it for eight damn signals at once gets it or <laughs> does everybody get it? Yeah, but but managers don't rise to manager level without having without being bright people. I mean, they may not be always technical wizards. They, you know, they may have not have graduated at the top of the engineering class, but they're usually pretty bright people and they they make decisions for what they perceive to be rational reasons. Do do you get any sense of I mean, I'm sure they're under pressure to deliver lower costs, you know, uh, uh, division profits, lower overhead, all these types of things. Do you get any sense of if they're not if they're not supplying these tools, you know, they there's no sense in them denying you the tools because they're paying you a good salary and they want you to accomplish things that improve profitability and make them look better within the organization. So do you have any sense for the trade-offs that are being made or why they're deciding to put the money in other places? Or do you even know where the money's being put? Uh, maybe a smidge, but now we're getting in territory. I don't know if I can discuss over the air. That's classified. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that's fair enough. I'm sorry. I just, in, in general, I'm, I'm always interested in this other uh, perception from the, the engineer of, I don't get the tools that I want. And, uh, the perception from the managers that you know all the all the engineers want to do is is buy new toys. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna cover my ass on this one and not not comment, <laughs> <laughs> not say anything. Okay. I've never run into that. Okay. To to, to that uh, sentiment, it's uh, it's. I'm also coming from a world too where typically the most expensive tools that are bought are the maintenance on whatever CAD package we're using. Mm-hmm. I mean. Maintaining, you know, dozen cadence or Altium licenses is really expensive. Yes, it is. <laughs> compared to a one-time purchase of an O-scope or a lease. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it it just doesn't really factor in. Um, and I've also worked in places where generally the equipment is, you're, you can't get out the door without it. You know, there's, there's, Zero incentive to cheap out because it affects your bandwidth when it comes to actually getting product out the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it at least where I work, it also depends on what I'm looking to buy. Like if I my player's broke, you know, I'd never get told, "Oh, well, our player budget is re-upped in three months. Uh, borrow somebody's." Um, <laughs> that would never happen. But you know, for anything, I'm just going to ballpark a number. I have no idea where our cutoff is. Say a thousand dollars. Uh, you know, anything under a thousand dollars I can just buy if I can, can, not like on my own credit card, but I can go to my boss and say, Hey, I found this cheap power supply. I could really use it. Um, you know, yeah, it's not as nice as some of the ones we have, but all it's going to do is provide five volts at a couple milliamps and, you know, with the, everybody's using all the ones in the bench and, you know, or in the lab and I need it. 
yeah, it might take a little paperwork, but I can generally swing that and get it. Um, mm-hmm. Not that that comes up once a week or anything, but if all of a sudden I need to spend $10,000 on come with some electronic loads and a function generator, well, then then you start getting into the higher ups and more people need to be brought in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really have any issues either. We've got a lot of transparency in our equipment budgets. You just raise taxes if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, not even close. Uh, and, and really, in the scheme of things, uh, equipment is a very, very, very small drop in the bucket, especially when you look at staffing, diesel fuel, salt. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a bulldozer just happened to show up in my driveway that was previously owned by your uh, DOT, that would be totally cool. <laughs> um, no, that, that wouldn't be cool. But uh, at the same time, it, it is a relatively small thing. And um, you know, not everybody gets all the equipment they want. What ends up happening is at the end of the, the year and, and, um, well, end of the, the year in quotes, which is July, uh, everybody puts in their, their requests for new equipment and, uh, whoever makes the best case gets new equipment. Um, but it, you know, everybody's, everybody gets their chance to say, this is why I need this new truck or this is why I need the new bulldozer. Or, I need a new camera. So does work pay for SimCity because that's training for you? Uh, No, they do not. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's perfect. You just justify that one. Be like, well, how else am I supposed to know not to put the park next to the sewage plant? (laughs) But our state does have several Bugattis just to test the road. No, of course. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Lamborghinis. Bugattis are just unrealistic. There's only like six made and you need more than six. Yeah. And I doubt there are any even in the state. So not not owned by the state, but in the state period. So let's see what, uh, you know, Jeff, what, what are some of your favorite tools? You know, what do you use? I'm sure you have access to a full machine shop being at the university. You, uh, you Bridgeport mill fanboy. Well, you know, my first job was retrofitting Bridgeport <laughs> mills, but is, uh, is Bridgeport still in business? Uh, I don't know. Who wants to be the first to Google it? Ooh, this is great podcasting. Googling on it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, it's something that's always been in the back of my head that that is universally referred to as a Bridgeport Mill. Mm-hmm. Oh, they went out of business in 2004, or it was acquired by a multinational two corporation. Yeah. So, so there is there is a machine shop there at the university, but I have. I, uh, except for, I think I stepped foot in there one time on a bit of a short tour or I was meeting somebody, but, uh, no, I'm not spending time there. I've spent far, far more time, uh, sitting at my desk doing, you know, PowerPoint slides than, uh, than in the machine shop, which is kind of sad. Cause I really, I love the machine shop and there's a smell of the cutting, cutting oil in the air. You know, if you walk into a machine shop, I just love that. There's that's exciting. You know, exciting stuff is going on. There. Oh yeah, same, same in electronics lab. You got that solder smell. You got the flux, the IPA for cleaning boards. Yeah. What What about you, Adam? Do you Do you like the smell of asphalt in the morning? <laughs> uh, and not so much. Not so much asphalt. That actually smells awful. But <laughs> <laughs> there, there is something about the the, the diesel fumes and, and getting out in the uh, the um, the shop area. Mm-hmm. Uh, where all the the plow trucks and and you know hydraulic fluid and and diesel oil and things like that. That's just yeah. a gasoline high. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
Well, you know, um, the, the tool I guess I use on a day-to-day basis, I was, I was thinking about this when we talked about what we'd, uh, uh, our subject would be for this episode. And I, I came to the conclusion that the tool I use most frequently because I use it for hours and hours every day is my coffee mug warmer. <laughs> and so I love to drink coffee. And when I worked in uh, my first couple of jobs, the only place to go get coffee was some you know vending machine down the hallway. And so then you'd get the coffee uh, either in the styrofoam cup that always had the, the kind of weird aftertaste. Uh, or the plastic cup that uh, disintegrated after about 30 minutes. <laughs> and so, and the coffee was pretty awful. I mean, maybe they've improved vending machine coffee in the meantime, but but this stuff was pretty awful. And so, but I did enjoy coffee. And so when I started working uh, for myself, I always had a, you know, a pot of coffee nearby and, uh, and I always had a ceramic mug. And for years and years, I had w- just one ceramic mug that I would wash out every time I wanted a new cup of coffee. And I took good care of that. I think I had that for six or seven years before I dropped it one day and it, it uh, shattered. Ooh, but, you actually uh, uh, washed your ceramic mug? Oh, every, every time I used I it. I think yeah. the way some of the guys at work would do it, it's like cast iron. You're not supposed to wash it. <laughs> coffee is sterile. <laughs> it it, it uh, cakes the flavor into the ceramic. Yeah. Yeah. Adds, adds a little bit of flavor from all those past cups into the, uh, into the, the beverage. Yeah. Well, so the the problem with the ceramic mug, of course, is that it, you know, the, the heat dissipates. And if you're not, and I'm not, you know, chugging down the coffee or else I'd be, you know, wired all day. Um, you know, I like to sip on it as I'm going along. And, and uh, so a, a coffee mug warmer works great. And uh, so I, I, unfortunately, I probably don't have the good type there. The, uh, the ones I buy are about nine, you know, nine bucks on it from various locations and they really don't have quite enough heat. So if I'm down to a half a cup of coffee, it can keep the coffee warm. But if I, if I've, you know, it's a full cup of coffee, it's just a not enough heat. And so it seems to me you need, uh, uh, you know, about 25 to 40 Watts somewhere in there, at least 25 Watts probably to keep a cup of coffee warm. And I don't think this is one has quite that enough, uh, that much oomph, huh. but, uh, so I, you know, it's a small detail, but my my days are made much happier by the fact I have a coffee mug warmer. So I don't know what what about you, Adam? What's uh, what's something you use on a daily basis? Uh, well, the the first thing I turn on when I get into the office, uh, other than light, and the uh, last thing I turn off when I leave, yeah. uh, is my computer, which is a pretty pretty vague uh, um, item, I know, but uh, that's the reality. Um, yeah, and I, I I would be, I would actually be very surprised if anybody here had a, a much different, um, different scenario than I do on that. Yeah, well, my scenario is different in that I don't turn it off overnight. Oh, <laughs> so I I was so I, wasteful. Well, it is. Well, <laughs> but I, I will say I don't actually turn it off. I log out. <laughs> but okay, same thing. I just lock mine. Well, well, and and I hear what you're saying, Brian, and I'm paying oh, the electric I'm bill. No, well, I I understand I'm paying the electric bill, but then I I started listening to uh, people that were talking about hard drives and and uh, computer components, and they all said the the killer of these components is the thermal cycling. Mm-hmm. And so I just leave it on, and of course, it the nice thing is when I get up in the morning, the mail's there, and I'm ready to go, and and I don't have to wait for it to boot up to start my day. And of course, since I work out of my home. 
a lot. The, the commute's pretty short, so that's nice. I just walk in and sit down, and I'm ready to go. But uh, yeah, I made that decision. I used to shut it down every night, but I made that decision just because I read that one of the big problems with with computer boards was the thermal cycling. Hmm. Mm-hmm. However, if one of our listeners has done a study, they have a reason to believe that uh, this is uh, the wrong way to go. I'm happy to listen to reason. Yeah, I, I, I use mine every day, and I got a reasonable one at work, but I, I don't know if I'd call it one of my favorite tools. <laughs> well, it, I wouldn't say my favorite. I just most commonly used. True, true. Uh, yeah. So one of my favorites uh, moving along here is uh, kind of stereotypical for an engineer. I carry a multi-tool quite often, and uh, I've got the Leatherman Juice S2, and that's my multi-tool of choice. And it's it's good because it's got pretty much full size pliers, and I use this thing almost every day at home or at work, even if it's just open beer bottles. Uh, but when I have it on me, you know, I use the knife <laughs> all the time for cutting cardboard at work to put in the oven, or you know, stripping goofy wires that I don't feel like going to find the crimper for. Uh, you know, to <laughs> when I pull hot boards off the rework station uh, and I don't want to walk across the lab to get my players, I'll use those players because, you know, they're not my nice ones. So I can just pick up the board and hold it when it's super hot and carry it where I need to. Yeah, but that's a, I mean, that's a serious uh, piece of equipment there. That's not a cheap little, you know, five buck uh, pocket knife. No, no, but it's got, you know, the, uh, oh, $50. Damn. You can get them cheaper on eBay and you get the old model too. That's the one I got. I'm looking at our AMO. We should get some affiliate links in here, man. We'd be swimming in money. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and do you have any idea why they call it the juice S2? I do not know why Leatherman shows that. OJ's favorite. There we go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not the cheap one you get at the, you know, the gas station for five or $10, but I've abused the crap out of this thing. And it's, it's taking all the punishment I can give it. And when it starts to look a little beaten, I mail it back to Leatherman and they, you know, if they don't replace it. They fix it up free of charge. Wow. Ship it back. Hey. Yeah. Leatherman's warranty is awesome. I highly recommend it. Wow. And do you remember where you got this originally? Uh, I got it originally as a Christmas gift uh, in 2009. Nice. So it's been about uh, six years. And, you know, as testament, I can, uh, you know, post some pictures of my jeans coins pocket and you can see the outline of it in there. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, it might be, you know, you can get them on sale. That's the, the, you know, for 30, 50 bucks or whatever. And they're they're totally worth it. It's worth a little bit of extra money, and yeah. you know at least for the work I do on PCB boards or just general you know around the house stuff, it's it's a good size for me. I don't need one of the full size heavy ones. Sure. As much as I love Leatherman, I don't want to be has a lot of stuff on his belt, guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, what about you, Brian? What uh, what tools do you use on a regular basis? So I will split hairs or cause a riot, and I will say Altium. Um, I'll pick out a brand. I've, I've used Cadence, and I've fooled around with Mentor and a couple other ones. Um, and I just love Altium. Okay, so, and for those of our listeners that are not electrical engineers, what is Altium? Ah, schematic capture and board layout software. I'm sure it tries to do other things as... Uh, Mr. Dave Jones has said, but it is really good at those. Okay. Um, or at least I prefer it, but that's 
you know, that's based on my user experience and my history with other competing packages. But, uh, um, you know, and actually I would couple it to uh, number three on my list, which would be Osh Park and Advanced Circuits because the ability to quickly get cheap circuit boards is a big part of my job. Okay. And, uh, and so Osh Park, I think of that as being someplace where hobbyists send things off and it takes two or three weeks to get it back. Uh, how are you, what are you doing differently that's allowing you to make a quick turn on that? No, it's actually no different. If I need a quick, I'll go with advanced circuits or I'll send it off to, uh, one of our other vendors. But at the same time, you know, I rarely need a circuit board within a day or two or even a week. Mm -hmm. Usually, usually whatever problem I'm trying to solve or whatever prototype I'm going to cut is stacked a couple deep. Mm -hmm. And so even if I had the circuit board tomorrow, I might not have the software in order to run the tests, et cetera. So having the circuit board cheap and having it done well is far more important than having it, you know, lightning quick. Right. So, so speaking of that, I'm just, I'm going to jump subjects here real quick. So Adam, when, when I was working for, um, a medical device manufacturer, we sometimes needed prototypes, you know, right away we had an idea and we wanted to do a focus study or, you know, sometimes we needed stuff really quickly, uh, for mechanical devices. Uh, Brian sometimes needs boards very quickly. What is it in, in when you're building roads and, or, or doing traffic intersections, that kind of thing, what, what kind of things do you need really quickly? Um, well, usually if something needs to be done really quickly, either it's, it's planned out in advance, like if we've got something that's going to be a significant impact, we will well in advance plan for this to be an issue and everybody's got everything on, you know, ready, or it's an emergency situation like um, we had a, a bridge get hit. Right. And, um, yep, okay, we, well, and I don't, because I don't deal with these directly, but um, it's, all right, drop what you're working on. This is the priority for the next two days, and we're going to, you know, whatever we can do, and we're going to pay to to right. take precedence over their other customers. And, you know, a crane's going to show up where we need them, and, you know, this city, this county, or this other project is going to wait while that crane is helping us with this uh, emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really about the only thing I can think of that is, is super quick turnaround. Um, otherwise we're really, really, really slow. In those situations, <laughs> are you typically getting your equipment from in-house or would you go and get uh, an independent contractor? Uh, it would depend. Uh, usually we'll do it in-house, but there's certain equipment we just don't have. Like um, we don't have large cranes. Mm-hmm. We don't use them enough to make it worth it, so we'll get a contractor to come in and, and like, um, like this bridge situation I was thinking about. We hired a contractor to come in and pick the bridge up and move it off the road, so we could get the road back open. Um, but our forces were there dealing with traffic control and and um, doing a lot of the other work um, with our, right. our maintenance guys and stuff that we that we own. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there are. Um, one nice thing about this is we do have some contracts in place for these sorts of situations where, right. okay, we've prearranged that if there's an emergency, this is our first contact for, for this. They've already got a prearranged price. We come up and we tell them that they get to come here right now. Um, and we're not, we're not negotiating the rush. It's already been done. Mm-hmm. That is an excellent idea. 
Will, will that even include them pulling equipment off other jobs? And yep. Okay. Yeah, we we pre negotiate that. Um, you know, if there's an emergency, this is the rate we're going to pay, and this is their expected response. Whatever that ends up taking, and they just need to keep that in mind. And most of these companies have enough equipment that it's not. You know, they're not going to pull it off their highest priority pr- job. They're going to pull it off one of the the lower priority jobs. That the delay is not going to be a big issue. Or Viking, the Viking Stadium can wait as long as I ninety four stays open. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's usually a matter of it can wait six hours while we get this open. <laughs> yes, it's kind of interesting. You've got you've got the uh, the dichotomy there where everything you do is so big and so massive. You have to plan well in advance and be very you know deliberate about that. Uh, but when you have something happen, like an accident on a highway, uh, or you know, a, a bridge, you know, uh, becoming impassable, that kind of thing, that happens so quickly, and you have to, you have again, have to move so quickly. So it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, dichotomy you've got to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's crazy how uh, an organization so big can move so quickly and so slowly at the same time. <laughs> Actually, I mean, that's a great example, a bridge. I mean, I live probably less than a mile away from the I-35W bridge that collapsed a few years ago. And, you know, yeah, I mean, lightning response for the disaster, but then it took, I mean, it's amazing how quickly that, or how uh, slow the recovery was from that particular um, event. I mean, it, it took years to rebuild the bridge. And I would argue that was lightning fast. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. As far as you know, what it ta- what it takes politically to get something done uh, on that scale, it was done very quickly. But yeah, a project of that scale would normally uh, be about a six year process before the first um, first bit of work is visible. And they were. I don't know exactly how quickly they responded to that one, but they were going. Like that yeah. quickly on that one. I think it took two or three years to get rebuilt. Is that? But that was done. But that was done. Oh yeah, and we'd yeah. be talking five or six before the first uh, the first shovel turn uh, normally, and then two years to build it. So, um, but it, it's all a matter of it's all a matter of scale and perspective. So, so the bridges are something that happens at the large scale, but uh, down the. Small scale again, you know. I talked earlier about my my coffee mug warmers being my number one tool to uh, to make me happy during the day, and I must say my my number two tool is a an ancient at this point uh, Hewlett Packard calculator, and I just I can't hardly get through the day without this thing. There's always some number that I need to uh, you know divide, multiply, add or divide, or, or add and subtract, and uh, I've tried the doing the you know they've got the calculator on the computer, but it just doesn't have that tactile feel on the buttons. Uh, I've tried the you know the an equivalent uh, reverse Polish notation calculator on my smartphone, but it doesn't have the you know again it doesn't have that button. And in fact, the Hewlett Packard uh, calculators they started um, after Hewlett Packard decided it was a printer business instead of a instrument business. They started outsourcing their calculator design, I believe. And some of their later calculators had very stiff and plastic e feeling buttons, and I hated those. But so I'm still using an ancient uh, 48G 
Hewlett Packard computer, and it does very nicely for me on a day-to-day basis. Now, you guys are younger. Do you, did you ever use calculators on a regular basis? Well, I, I just want to know when you think it, they, the packaging worsened on TI calculator. Was it HP or TI? HP. Because uh, I was always a TI guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I still am rocking my 89. Yeah. Yeah, I think when they went to the 49G, I think is when it started to go. I can't remember. It was somewhere in there. No, no calculators for me. Oh, I have a, a Casio FX-115, uh, which I have because it was one of the calculators allowed on the FE and PE exam, mm-hmm. uh, and one that actually did some integration, which I've always been awful at. Um, I, I use that one, I wouldn't say every day, but probably every week. Um, but most of the time, it's it's a calculation of, okay, I need to verify that this, you know, verify that the Excel formula that produced this table is correct without actually having the Excel table in front of me, mm-hmm. you know, so, okay, I'll, I'll add up this column and make sure this one comes out right as kind of a, um, you know, a spot check. Sanity check. Uh, but nothing real complicated. Usually it's addition or subtraction, maybe some multiplication. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I really like the, uh, I really like my calculator, but I guess you guys don't know that because you've never used them. <laughs> well, no, I uh, HP was kind of uh, out as far as calculators, and and really, it, it was only whatever was forced by either middle school or high school. Um, and I took that into college, but at the same time, you know, once in industry, I don't think I cracked open my TI eighty six once. Um, it's all been, you know. Excel or if I need to Windows calculator and now my phone, you know, which is a calculator built in. Right. But it doesn't have those nice buttons. I just can't, (laughs) I can't get over that. (laughs) All right. Um, see. So, so Carmen, uh, what's, what's another tool you use on a regular basis? Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I mentioned the one earlier is a, a nice hot air rework station, and it's not mine per se, it's the labs, but I'm on it, you know, especially doing validation once a day at least. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, got a nice heated plate on the bottom, a nozzle that comes down, and you can do an area or just a specific chip depending on what nozzle you put in. There's a vision mm-hmm. system for BGA parts. Um, just I, I would not be able to function without it. Okay, and let, so let's back up. So, again, for those uh, engineers that are listening that are not, Electrical engineers, VGA, ball grid array, what is that? Uh, it's a packaging method for integrated circuits. So instead of having the little leads that you can hand solder or easily put solder paste on, you know, all the, all the leads are on the bottom and you have to, you know, perfectly align it with the pads. There's really no wiggle room and lower it down on there. And then, you know, there's a solder profile for each part on how it's supposed to heat up and reflow onto the board. And I might have missed this, Carmen. How are you doing placement? Uh, there's a, a vision system. So, you know, the, the nozzle has a little bit of suction to it. So you position it over the part in a tray, picks it up. And, uh, you know, then this optic thing slides out and you look through the microscope and you see using some lights, and some mirrors and some stuff. I don't know exactly how it works. Uh, you see a view of the balls on the board and then you use the XY wheels and the, the theta wheel to perfectly align it. You lock the table, hit go 
and it comes down and places the part and then heats up and goes through the solder profile. So do you only align on one corner by looking at maybe how the first couple balls line up with the part? Uh, I can see the whole chip. It depends on how much you want to zoom in or not. Uh, I stay far oh, really? away and align them all. But yeah, I do start with a corner, line that up, twist it to make sure they all line up. It's it's definitely manual and meant for prototyping and single boards and whatnot. You would never use it in a high-volume manufacturing or anything. Interesting. Yeah, but it, it's invaluable. And, you know, if I got to blow up a, blow up a part and swap one out, and, you know, I, I need it. I can't do my job without it. Um, <laughs> and then along with that, you know, because I solder a lot, is uh, my soldering iron. And I personally prefer pace myself. And, yeah, I know there's people out there that are like, ah, oh, Metcal all the way. Well, Metcal's expensive, and I don't have the crazy-ass solder certifications that would justify me having one of those. <laughs> yeah. So I, I stick with Pace irons, and they're they're still, you know, they're not cheap. They're not like a Weller or, you know, the Heiko FX, whatever it is. Um, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars, but it's got a great warranty, and uh, there's a million little tips I can throw in there, and it's worked real well for me. Yeah, but, but and we've talked about this before, but it's kind of interesting um, that that you were able to do hands-on type stuff. It sounds like Brian also was able to do uh, some of his own hands-on type stuff. But all the jobs I had as a as a mechanical designer or design engineer or project engineer, I was never allowed, I, except you know my my early summer jobs where I was working on the assembly line uh, or on the on the shop floor. I was never allowed to touch the tools. I mean, I couldn't, you know. I was in big trouble if I went over and started turning the cranks on a on a milling machine. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting the the variety of engineering jobs and and whether one is allowed to touch the tools or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I, go ahead, Adam. I, I, yeah, I have the, this problem that if I go out in the field and and one of our uh, electronics guys is working on something or electronics technicians, I, I, I want to just saying, oh yeah, that red wire goes into that red. Uh, screw terminal. I, I just want to go out, go in there, and just you know start stripping wires and putting things together. Uh, but they they really don't like me doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure uh, you know how it works everywhere, but at least in my my office, I'm allowed to touch whatever I want. And you know, maybe it'd probably be different if I worked at a, a customer site. But yeah, well, and I wonder if it's an industry type thing. I I wonder if your job in in the electronics industry. Uh, is just different by its nature than you know some of the other mechanical manufacturing or or in in Adam's case the manufacturing of roads and highways. Yeah. Oh no, it's definitely like that somewhere. Um, my brother he's in school to be an electrical engineer and he just finished up his first co-op um, mm-hmm. with an aerospace company and he was not allowed to mess with the boards or take anything off. He was allowed a multimeter to debug, and if he couldn't <laughs> figure out what that, it was you know. That was up to him, but you know, I'm, my board's a couple hundred bucks, and if I right. blow it up, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. Whereas they're making you know a dozen boards a year, so yeah, you're not touching it. <laughs> right, and what's the useful bandwidth with a multimeter? More than you Whoa. think. Once you get some experience, you could tell quite a bit. You know, besides just the basic opens and shorts, and you know. Uh, if you get one, you know, with a lot of functions like the, uh, the capacitance and stuff, like, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. accurate, but it, I've used it plenty of times and it's, it's enough to give you a general, general <laughs> sense of if it's ballpark, you know, if it's supposed to be like 10 microfarads and you're reading a nanofarad or, you know, 
200 microfarads, then you, you know something's up. But then you also have to know when you can and cannot use that tool because I've used it and I know for a fact I put the right part on and I'll double check and it's way yeah. off. <laughs> okay. So it, it could, if you're biasing up something on chip with the multimeter, then, uh, you know, you're affecting your measurements. So there's there's certain places I can use it and certain places I cannot. To uh, answer your question or hypothesize and answer your question, Jeff, uh, sure. I think a big difference is if you are working with um, prototype or production. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it sounds like from Adam's example, there's probably not a whole lot of prototyping. You're probably working on stuff that is going to be left in the field permanently, right? Yes, yes. We don't prototype anything, really. And generally, um, the same rules will apply if you're doubly working on production equipment. Like in aerospace, you know, if you have – everything's about traceability and, and making sure – first off, if you're an electrical engineer, you will never touch with a solder iron a um, – a controlled board. It's only going to be people, be people with an FAA stamp. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's an equivalent inside the medical device world, but you just, you won't even touch it unless you're strapped down to a bench, you know, surrounded by people. <laughs> yeah, it was like that uh, on my first co-op at GE on the production floor. If you were an engineer, you didn't touch, you, you didn't interfere with the production guys and the people who are certified solderers and everything. That was uh-huh. that was their domain. When something broke and they had to be troubleshot, you know, they'd send a board or two over to engineering for debug. And yeah, then you got to hack it up and do what you needed to. But those were those were then considered scrap, scrap. boards for yeah, lack of a better term. Yeah. And so the hands-on stuff I do is never production related. It's always building prototypes. Yeah. You and, know, and all my stuff essentially is prototyping, validating a chip. It's not. Yeah, the chip goes to production, and you know my customers can order eval boards for sampling, but it's not. That's not going in a final product. That's for eval purposes. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when a customer sends a board in to get fixed for to me, they understand. You know, if it comes back in working condition, depending on what needs to be done, they will just rework it themselves and not, uh, not just trust that my soldering is good enough. Right. So, and along the lines of Carmen's uh, topic of, you know engineering board development and uh, assembly. Sure. I would also add uh, uh, low-temp solder paste, uh, bismuth-based solder paste. Um, I don't know why. I just find it to, I find it to be so much easier um, <laughs> to use. Uh, I would also add a really sharp pair of tweezers. Oh, yeah. Those are key. For working with uh, small surface mount devices. 30 AWG wire. You know, non-stranded solid core wire, and as as thin as you can get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I regularly use thirty four, thirty six gauge. Yeah, and I I oftentimes have trouble getting my hands on that stuff, but it's it's a uh, it's a big deal, um, in terms of uh, I've I've been in places where you know you only have you know twenty four gauge available, and you know you're trying to solder it to a you're trying to get a test lead on a um, tool one uh, package, or I was thinking like a hundred pin QFN. Oh yeah, like, that too. Okay, you guys, you, you guys have to back up a little bit here. So, <laughs> so for the non electrical, for the non double E's, you've got to explain what uh, thirty gauge is versus twenty four gauge or sixteen gauge, and just how how small is that? The the bigger the gauge, the thinner the wire, and thirty four thirty six gauge, it's 
you know, I don't know the exact dimensions, but it's not much bigger than a human hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have found 30, uh, you know, let's see, uh, 30 is on the books as being um, uh, 10 mil in diameter. Okay. Um, you can also get, uh, you know, wire wrap wire has a very nice, mm-hmm. um, I'm not exactly sure what the chemical composition of the cladding is, but it tends not to melt as easily as some other kinds of, uh, stranded wire. I've seen it. Uh, that also may be a function of how much heat you have to put into it to solder it. Right. I think some of the stranded wire you need to put a lot of heat into it. So generally you want it not to affect the thing that you're trying to lead up to. Sure. So not bend parts, not have a lot of, uh, I'm going to stretch my mechanical terms here, but like a preload so that, you know, it's popping a solder joint off. Um, you want it to flex as you hook up leads to it and it moves around. Um, so if it, if the scope lead is hanging off of a, of a lead and it's really heavy gauge wire, it's going to transfer that mechanical force directly onto the crappy solder joint you just did. Right. Um, or it could lift a trace too if it's a real skinny Calvin connection. Exactly. So, you know, thinner is better, but it also has to be work what has to be strippable. Right. I would also say it, you mentioned a hot air rework station, uh, Carmen. An awesome heat gun is also something nice to have. Or sometimes you just need to move a, remove a lot of parts really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I've found that like a really big heat gun is a, is a way to do that, where you can literally clear a whole section of the board sometimes. Because <laughs> it just also, blows them right off. <laughs> yeah, and it's also really awesome for uh, um, soldering really heavy gauge wire. Oh, see, I don't have to deal with really heavy gauge. I've only had to do it once or twice, but it was a savior, whereas, like, the soldering iron was not putting enough heat onto it. Mm-hmm. And I just used, like, a... And I'm thinking something you'd use to, like, you know, like, bend a hockey stick. <laughs> you know, just shy of a blowtorch. You yeah. know. I don't know if mine's up. quite that powerful, but I use mine to abuse parts, too. And, you know, for nothing calibrated, I'd use an oven for that. But just to see if there's temperature effects, it's real great to just point at a board and set the heat for high enough where things get hot, but not high enough to melt solder. Yeah. Now, Brian, for my reference, what do you define as really heavy gauge wire? <sighs> Jeez. Um, Ot? Double lot? No, 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 not that, not that big. Okay. Probably, um, probably thicker than 10. Okay. You're generally not soldering much higher than that, but I've had applications where I've had to solder lugs to wires, you know, for test equipment, never for anything production. I would never design anything. You, you get up to that size and you're definitely using lugs. But uh, I've seen some low-voltage, high-current applications that required me to do the soldering. That's not how they do it in production, but I didn't have the equipment in front of me, so... Go at it with a hot air rework, or it's not even a hot air rework gun. It's just a big hot air gun. Now, now, Brian, what does it say that the the tools you have mentioned are all tools that are useful in your job and to uh, to increase your productivity, whereas the tools I've mentioned so far are merely for my own creature comforts? Oh, I included my creature comforts, uh, LabVIEW Python, OneNote. 
Um, <laughs> my, my iPhone. I've some actually, more hobbies. <laughs> I've used my iPhone as one is increasingly becoming one of my most often used tools. Um, okay. You know, it's the easiest way to take a screenshot on a scope. Yeah, I sure. know that's I know that's how it was originally done too, where you had the big, you know, Instamatic camera with the viewing hood on the um uh phosphor screen scope, but really uh, I I want to show something to my boss. Click. No. You don't Text. uh you don't have the software from the scope vendor that hooks up to the scope and I do, but my phone is in my pocket, and he's in the other end of a text message. Uh-huh. See, if I'm taking scope <laughs> shots, I always have my laptop with me. So, Yeah, no, I, and if I'm doing something in a formal setting, but oftentimes it's not formal, it's what do you think of this? Gotcha. Um, I've been in a scenario where I've used FaceTime where I was inside of the anechoic chamber and somebody else was outside of the anechoic chamber looking at a piece of hardware, and I needed to see how how we changed the fixturing was affecting measurements we were getting. And, you know, he had his iPhone pointed at the equipment. We were the high precision equipment that was monitoring our setup. And I was in with my iPhone playing with pieces of the setup, looking at how it affected the, the readings we were trying to get. I'm trying to be as vague as possible, (laughs) but you know, yeah. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, and from that same high-precision measurement device, I can scroll DigiKey, get parts, check out the latest vendors, mm-hmm. listen to the amp hour or the engineering commons. Yes, yes, I definitely uh, have my favorite podcast app on the list. I use uh, <laughs> I use Downcast for iOS, and I love it. I could say Pandora on here, Jeff, if it makes you feel better. Well, that's fine. I just felt bad. You, I'd, I'd mentioned the 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 coffee mug warmer. My calculator, neither of which was really critical to me doing my job, and uh, and you had mentioned these the you know important tools of your of your trade. So I, oh, I just I just you, what, what this, I just wondered what that said about you and about me. I would not be able to function in my job without Dunn Brothers Coffee in the morning. <laughs> okay, Ooh, you even throw another brand in there. Oh, absolutely! They don't they don't scorch their coffee like other national coffee brands that I <laughs> could mention. <laughs> right. And which I know because of one of our previous guest podcasts is a way to decrease the amount of caffeine in the coffee. Oh, that's right. I'm assuming we've all listened to John's episode on coffee. Oh, of course. I ha- I have, but we'll we'll put a link in the show notes for those listeners who want to go listen to everything you'd ever want to know about uh, coffee and making coffee. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I got a, I got one. I'll change it up a little bit. Uh, I don't really use them at work, but I use them all the time at home as I'm doing tasks around the house. Uh, Pick quick brand screwdrivers. Um, they are fantastic. I got them for Christmas this year. Uh, there's a, a three pack you can get for 25 bucks, a really big screwdriver, uh, a medium size and a real tiny one. And, you know, it's a, a quick change system that prevents you from losing the bits. And they are some sturdy screwdrivers. I highly recommend them. So how do you, how does it avoid losing the bits? Uh, well, if you pull up the, the Amazon link. Yes, but you're going to have to describe it in words because oh, yes, our I'm listeners getting, are, I'm getting there. Are, but th- this way you can see <laughs> along, you know, you can play along. Sure. So you, you see the screwdriver handle and then it, you know, there's the, the shaft that comes out and it holds the bit. Uh, you, you pull the bit out, and it's held in there magnetically, but it's pretty snug mm-hmm. physically, too. There's not a lot of play. Um, okay. 
so you pull the bit out that comes with it and then uh in inside the handle there's there's cutouts and it holds the other bits and to get one of those bits out you have to put the one you removed underneath it and push up and it, it comes right out okay so that this way you can in theory you know if you use it appropriately you only ever have one bit out at a time the one you're using uh, right so I've, I've used these things multiple times a week haven't lost a bit they're they're good you know quality screwdriver bits you know they don't get chewed up when you're doing a lot of screws right but uh, this is a manual screwdriver Carmen yeah there's n- there's no power involved whatsoever except your <laughs> elbow grease Dang, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to get my uh, cordless drill to drive some, you know, screws into my desktop to secure the hard drive to the motherboard or the hard drive to the case. <laughs> you you rely on that precision torque generated by your wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know just how much finger uh, finger torquing I need. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. No, don't worry. I, I pull out the impact driver every chance I get. <laughs> but no, for just right. some, some general purpose, you know, awesome multi-bit screwdrivers, pick quick is the way to go. All right. Well, you know, another tool that I use, especially when I was doing mechanical design, in fact, I've got it in my hand here, is a set of calipers. And so this is a device that uh, uh, it's got a, it's got a, a center part and then a uh, it's got a dial that uh, is attached. Well, if it's digital, then it's a readout. But it's got another part that slides up and down the first part, and uh, it's got a couple of prongs that stick out, and you can use these prongs to measure the the length of something or the diameter of something, the width of something. And uh, when I was doing mechanical design, all the time, you know, you'd, you'd look up and, and the uh, the diameter of the snap ring was, you know, 0.793 inches. It's like, okay, just how big is that relative to everything else? And I'd pull out my calipers and dial up 793 and give it a look. Ah, okay, it's about that big. Or I, if I had parts, features that, you know, I had a part on my desk and I would measure the features and, uh, try to get an idea of relative sizes. So I don't know. I don't, I can't say that I've ever seen anyone else doing that, uh, at least not to the extent that I did, but this was always a great tool for me just to have a set of calipers around. And, and actually the set I have in my hand are a, a plastic set. They're not real accurate. They're a set I picked up at Sears for, you know, 10 bucks or something. I've got more accurate calipers, but this, this pair I can throw around the desk. I don't care. It's not like I'm going to mess it up, uh, but I've, it's always been real handy. I was going to confess that I do the exact same thing with a caliper on my desk where I'll, I'll see a part and I'm sorry, I, you know, sometimes they're in metrics, sometimes they're in freedom units. Right. <laughs> and I can't, I can't jump back and forth between the two and I'll just bust out the caliper, or switch to freedom units and slide it into place. And <laughs> okay, that's, that's how big a hundred thou is or ten thou. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, maybe not quite the same scale, but I do the same thing. Uh, if I'm trying to figure out how big something is, I'll actually paste things out in our office. Uh, sometimes I'll have a technician help me, and we'll 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 kind of paste things out. Um, you know, it, you know, civil engineering version of the calipers, <laughs> right? <laughs> Your calibrated foot. Well, you know, I I know one step is roughly three feet. You know, one foot, but you know, one step. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's close enough. Mm-hmm. Right. I like that, uh, Brian. Look at your list. I see uh, an interesting one. You, you use a three D printer that often? Yeah, I don't. I recommended one, and we use it all the time. So it, it is uh, 
very valuable in an, in an environment where you're doing packaging. Hmm. Interesting. Can't say I've ever used one in, uh, in my experiences. I would say I have been the beneficiary of a 3D printer such that I would recommend it for anyone who's doing... Um, case design? Yeah, actually, almost exclusively case design, or even more importantly, just trying to get general fit down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's way better than machining in certain respects, but, uh, you know, know the limitations. You know, I would say off-the-shelf 3D printers are just slightly above sucking. <laughs> what I'd like to hear is... Uh, Somebody who's got one do a real good comparison between, you know, off the shelf, like a MakerBot or something like that, and a really expensive, you know, $100,000 Stratasys type system. But I don't know anyone who's uh, got them both. Can't say I do either. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's very useful and it'll, you know, I can't recommend one enough. Oh, and on my list, too, FLIR camera. I've got one of those as well. (laughs) Yes. It is the easiest way to tell if there's something wrong with your circuit board. (laughs) Power it up and and look for the cherry red spot for where you you, uh, horrendously over-bias something. Yep. It's also fun, uh, at least on switching regulators, to watch the thermals over time as you hit it with a load transient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I go from zero amps to, you know, 15, 20, 25 amps and let it sit for a couple seconds or a minute or whatever, and you watch the heat spread out, and then all of a sudden you know when the load's released because everything starts to cool back down, and it's really cool to watch. You uh, you, you really do see, like, you know, that current takes the path of least resistance there because I know I got a big fat plane for V-out going to the lugs to the load, and yet only a small portion of it rises in temperature. <laughs> yeah. And uh, pro tip for anyone using a FLIR camera for the first time, the veterans all know this, uh, learn the word emissivity. Oh, your yes. <laughs> um, metal, shiny metal will always look cold. Well, I shouldn't say always. Generally look cold or colder than it actually is, um, whereas a black plastic package will give you a probably much more accurate temperature reading, which isn't a problem. It's a problem if you have bus bars, much less of a problem if you have, you know, normal leaded semiconductor packages. Mm-hmm. And I've always found for just general measurements, you know, I don't know if I would use it for, oh my God, we have to be super duper critical and, uh, you know, get this exact. Then I'd use a, a very fine tipped thermocouple, but uh, if Agreed. you use some just white out, they used to, you know, correct mistakes with pen. I don't know if anyone knows what the hell that is, how young our listeners are. <laughs> oh, that's a brilliant idea. Use but, that to increase the emissivity? Yeah, yeah. You put a little bit of white out on top of whatever I see you're looking at, and it uh, it helps a lot. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, we, we figured that one out because someone said hairspray, and that was just messy and stupid and didn't really work that well. And uh, white out works really good. Yeah, and to your point, it's really only good for relative measurements. Mm-hmm. It's But in any application you're looking at, oftentimes you just want to know what are the hottest points, what are the coolest points, you know, and then it's a jumping off point for attaching a thermocouple. 
Yes, yeah. So I know like, oh, it rose 40 degrees C over load, but, you know, I, I it, it's somewhere within three degrees of, you know, 20 degrees Celsius and, you know, 60 degrees Celsius. It's not, not perfect, but they, I can usually get it on my setups within, you know, definitely within five, usually within three degrees of a good thermocouple system. Yeah, it's way better than the alternative, which is either something on the board is squealing or you brush your hand across the board and you can burn it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also like the uh, the IR cameras, that you, or the not the IR cameras, the IR thermometers. You can plug into mm-hmm. a multimeter. Um, the IR thermometers, those are real nice, too. How did McMaster not get on our list anywhere? Well, we talked about that in previous shows. Yeah, but it should still be <clears throat> at least on one of our tools list. McMaster yeah. and Digikey. We'll add that to your list. <laughs> there you go. Now, now I noticed that in all this talk of all the uh, the computer tools, I'll go back to the uh, the old fashioned paper and pencil type things. And I noticed on my list, I had my mechanical pencil, and perhaps more importantly, my eraser because <laughs> i i use them both a lot it, uh adam you you also have a marking device on your list as well yeah i have uh red pens and highlighters which is probably the actually the second most common tool for me to use okay <laughs> um why why red pens uh most of i spend a lot of time doing corrections uh plan uh, uh plan sheet review and um you know the red just shows up it, it's almost like correcting paper it just shows up very very clearly and the highlighters for you know, mark things off that I've checked with a highlighter and red pen for things that need to be changed. Um, and actually, I, I I have one black pen at my desk. I do not know if I have a pencil at my desk. I, I never use them. I use red pens and blue pens and highlighters. I hate blue um, ink. <laughs> it helps me identify originals mm-hmm. versus photocopies. That's the reason I use blue ink. Fair <laughs> enough. That's it. That's a good idea. And I've got one black pen for signing final plan sets and uh that's it <laughs> what if someone does a color photocopy well then it, it the blue ink still shows up weird on a color photocopy yeah so i can still kind of pick out that it's not the original fair enough and jeff why why pencils i'm assuming you're talking about drafting uh but are there have you run into places where there's rules with respect to lab notebooks and no pencils Mm, none of the places that I, I worked at really required the lab notebooks on an ongoing basis, at least not in the job I was in. I was never doing product design. I was always doing equipment design. So they were a little less concerned. There was going to be no, you know, no patent issues on the design of the machinery. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, when I'm, when I'm sketching something out, I'm always making changes. It, the, the first stroke of the pen is never the last stroke that I'm going to make. And so I enjoy, I've got certain pens that I enjoy using, uh, but if I'm doing any kind of layout work or sketching, I almost always prefer using a pencil. And so I've been using mechanical pencils since I was in college. Um, Some would say you're still in college. Ooh, those are fine words. No, he's a teacher. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. And and I've I've got some mechanical pencils that uh, probably date back 20 or 25 years, but they eventually start to, to wear out a bit from, from constant use. And I buy some new ones and they of course keep changing the models about the time you find one you really like. They, they make some change to the model and, and uh, it's tough to find the 
the same thing again. So, and, and you can go online if you're a real, you know, a, uh, a real fan of mechanical pencils. There's no end to the, the amount of time people will spend buying and playing with mechanical pencils and trying to decide which one's the, the right one. I'm, I'm not that quite a, uh, quite that much of a, much of a connoisseur. I just go to the local Staples or uh, Office Depot and buy whatever they've got on sale there for, you know, six ninety five. dollars See, I'm always using, uh, using pens at work unless I got to do derivations and I got to reach for a pencil. <laughs> well, the, the nice thing about pencil is, is, you know, you can, you can uh, take a line and kind of sketch it and put the pencil on the side and you can get sort of different, uh, levels of, of gray and kind of change the way something appears. I find that much easier than doing it with a pen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I see something on Jeff's list that I uh, may be the only one who knows this. Uh, Kermit and Adam, do you guys know what Latex is? I've heard of it, but I've never used it. Likewise, I know what it is, what it's good for, but uh, can't really say I've ever used it. So I've used it, but it, it would connect well with something on my list, too. Um, so Jeff, do you still consistently use latex and what is it? Okay. Well, uh, it, it more commonly gets, uh, either called latex or latex, uh, with the, the X being, uh, getting the CH sound rather than the, the X sound. Oh, I failed. Uh, but this was, this was, uh, designed by, uh, oh, his name is escapes me. It'll come to me a second, uh, a Stanford professor. It is basically a a he, so this professor was a professor of computer science and he was frustrated by the fact that when you wanted to type out mathematical equations at that point in time you had to do it either on a typewriter which looked ugly as sin or you had to pay for very expensive layout as though you were printing a book uh, and so he decided that it, it couldn't be that that hard in order to develop a computer package that it will allow you to do mathematical layout. And so he, he's originally, my understanding was he thought this might take a, a year or two uh, to complete. And in fact, it took many, many years, like decades. But the advantage is with LaTeX, you basically, with regular ASCII characters, you define your mathematical symbols. So for instance, if you want to do an integral, Every, so in LaTeX, everything is preferred, or it's actually started as tech, T-E-X. And then uh, with some addition, some additional capabilities, uh, it got to be known as LaTeX, L-A-T-E-X. And so if I want to do an integral, I do a backslash, and everything in tech or LaTeX starts with, a, all the commands start with a backslash. So backslash I-N-T says I'm going to make an integral. And then I do an underscore to show the lower bound of the integral. So if I want to integrate from A to B, it's backslash INT underscore A uh, caret symbol, which shows the upper bound B. And now it produces the symbol that I want. Um, and so the, uh, the the thing that's hard for somebody coming to LaTeX for the first time is if, if you're used to doing papers in Microsoft Word or something similar to that, you get to control the format. You get control the footer. You get to control the margins. And you get to LaTeX and you keep trying to, well, I need to adjust this and I need to adjust that. And LaTeX is basically like, you're not, it's not like uh, a painting a picture. It's like programming a robot to paint the picture. Hmm. And so you have to get, 
you you have to let loose of the the notion that you are going to change all the details. And so someone has someone else has written a class for what you know for an article, an IEEE journal article, or you know a a, a, a book. You know, somebody's done the class, done all the layout, and you have to give give up your control of the layout and just worry about the content. And so it's a it, it is kind of a steep learning curve. But I it, the papers done in uh, LaTeX look so much better than what I'm able to produce in Microsoft Word. And so I'm I love doing paper, even though it's sometimes a pain in the butt to get all the all the details right of this programming. It, it produces the documents that look wonderful, and so I really enjoy using it. I noticed Word's Equation Editor has a little of that. You know, you're talking about typing the slashes and whatever. Um, but, yeah, it's not nearly as featured or rudimentary, I guess, is, is for lack of a better word, is LaTeX. Right. But if you do, and I've learned this since I do a lot of PowerPoint slides, if you're in Word or PowerPoint, there's an a editor mode in there. If you hit, at least in a PC, you hit the alternate equal sign, you put yourself into this equation mode. Mm-hmm. And from there... You can type in LaTeX commands. So if I want to do an integral in, say, a slide of Microsoft PowerPoint, again, control or alt equal to put me in the mode and then backslash INT underscore A uppercase B and then hit space. Hmm. And that's the thing that's different about uh, the Microsoft in- implementation. You have to hit, hit space to get it to, you know, interpret all this and make a chain, you know, to represent it correctly. Mm-hmm. It took me a little while to figure that out. But if you know, if you know LaTeX, it can be very helpful when you're doing stuff, even in Microsoft Word. Now I'm going to have to play around with that. That's cool. <laughs> well, and, and how that dovetails into something that's on my list is, because um, just recently I was looking at LaTeX again for the first time in a couple of years. Sure. We've been looking at electronic, or we, I've been looking at electronic lab notebooks, um, in trying to find, I like the idea of searchability. I like the idea of multi, I hate to use the word multimedia, but multi-source, you know, mm-hmm. intermixing text and bitmaps, et cetera. Right. Um, and so I have been investigating OneNote because everyone I ask on this constantly is ashamed, but then simultaneously says OneNote may be the best <laughs> thing for it. Right. And then usually the first thing that I, that, Anytime this comes up in a discussion is, what's OneNote? <laughs> right. And it's a, it's a Microsoft, it's a good way to describe it. Hey, Jeff, do you have any familiarity with it? Sure, I've played around with OneNote. Microsoft's version of Evernote. Yeah. Uh, and I use Evernote as well. Um, but uh, what I found recently, because... I did need an equation editor. I was, I was like, oh man, does this support LaTeX? Or as I would have called it a few minutes ago, a text. Um, and come to find out that the inqui- the equation editor inside of uh, uh, Microsoft Office Office products suddenly stopped sucking um, recently, and it looks to have an equation editor that's at least equivalent to LaTeX. Yeah, and so and and so you can. Um... You can put equations – well, so there are various places you can put uh, LaTeX equations. For instance, uh, I know that you do some Python programming, mm-hmm. and there's a program called IPython, which allows you to build notebooks where you can mix code and text. Mm-hmm. And additionally, you can mix code and text and LaTeX code. If you, uh, It's common within LaTeX documents. If you're, just, if you're writing uh, text and in the middle of that line you need to uh, – 
uh, put, you know, a, a symbol or a brief equation in there, you use double dollar signs. So dollar sign, dollar sign, will put it into the the math mode, and then dollar sign, dollar sign will take you back out of that mode. Actually, that's uh, they the preferred. They prefer that you do a different method for getting in and out of the math mode, but everybody, a lot of people still use that means. And in an IPython document, that's what you can use to use uh, to embed LaTeX code within IPython. And, and, and when, when you say embed, you, ju- you just mean as with respect to commenting, right? Well, so yeah. So if you want, if you want a LaTeX equation in there, you use the dollar sign, dollar sign to say to LaTeX to IPython, this is LaTeX, and then it uses a program called MathJax to render that code within the browser that you're you're viewing the IPython document in. Mm-hmm. So my two-second endorsement, even though I haven't used it a whole lot of OneNote, would be the reviews I've seen basically fit into, I've never heard of it, or this is the greatest program that Microsoft has ever come <laughs> up with. <laughs> which is... I cannot, I cannot rule one way or another, but the people who use it are emphatic. Yes, they are. Yeah, and I've, I've looked at these. I've, I've used OneNote. I've not used Evernote. Uh, my understanding of the trade-off is that Evernote is more like a, a tagged database where you just throw everything in there and you can mm-hmm. pull it back out, whereas you kind of, within OneNote, because of the structure, you kind of have to in, in, impose the structure as you go along. The hierarchy, yeah. Yeah. As a former OneNote user, um, <laughs> and the emphasis is on former. <laughs> well, I, um, to me, honestly, it worked best when I had um, the old style tablets. You know, where you had to turn the screen around and you could write on the screen with a pen. Sure, um, it worked best with that sort of such setup. Um, I I find it a little bit awkward on a desktop. Interesting, because I'm using it on a desktop, and I can't imagine using it on a tablet. But okay. maybe they changed the UI. It's very possible. This has been like eight years. So teach their own, I guess. Yeah. Um, no. Now I've got an, another Microsoft product that uh, I use quite a bit, uh, and that's uh, Microsoft Excel. And I saw that in a couple others. But Microsoft gave us all this money to talk about their products. Uh, they did. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we, we like those big royalty checks, but there's only so much our <laughs> listeners can take, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make this quick. Um, anyways, Excel, and this ties back into uh, something I mentioned early, that the tool needs to do what you need it to do. And uh, the, the big advantage to me with Excel is I can use it to build other tools. Um, and, and while I, I don't necessarily use Excel like I did when I was in college... I create estimate crib sheets and I've got all sorts of templates. Um, like I've got a voltage drop calculation template that it, it, you know, I was able to put it together without too much effort in half an hour. I can type my values in, I can save it. And then all that is doc, that calculation is documented for me and I'm done. Um, so it lets me do almost like scripting, um, without having to put too much effort into it. Um, and it just it does what I need to do without me having to to work too hard at figuring it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely a powerful tool. A couple of the other guys have uh, same sort of thing. List have Excel listed as well. Yes, uh, it's my primary calculator at some at certain levels. 
Yeah, I use it all the time too. I have you know efficiency templates where I just plug in my numbers, the calculations are done, you know, uh, compensation spreadsheets, all, all sorts of fun stuff, right, right there in Excel. And those are nice because you can just kind of send them to anybody and you know they'll open it. Whereas if you, uh, you know, have some some special proprietary software that not everyone can use, you know, it's not as wide reaching. Mm-hmm. Right. And and how frequently are you using the uh the visual basic, you know, behind the scenes in order to extend the, the functionality of Excel. Uh, myself, basically yeah. never. Likewise. <laughs> um, usually I don't need to do that. Okay. Um, and, and I'm okay with it being fairly crude. Um, I mean, I there's definitely things I could do in visual basic to make it look nicer. I just, right. it's like, eh, it gives me the answer. I can read it. It's good enough. Let's throw it into the file and the project file and and move on. Well, I think that it's uh, a pretty good list of tools we have so far. Um, I think we, we might need a two parter here for this episode. <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't actually list get to all the tools we had listed on our little spreadsheet here. Yeah, well, it'll be ah. seventy nine and eighty or something. We'll just bump a gas. Who knows? <laughs> okay. And so this is uh, despite what I said on the last podcast. This is going to be the last episode of year three because this will come out on April 2nd. And it turns out that Chris Gamble and I released the first uh, version of this podcast on April 5th, 2012. So, oh, so close, so close. So Carmen, you don't have to worry about your party hat this episode, but next, next episode, episode. All right. Deal. I want to see that. All right. Well, it has been a joy. Yes, it has. We appreciate the conversation till, uh, till next time. Take care. See you later, gentlemen. Bye now. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 